Now, long before God created the church, he created the family. In the first four chapters of the book of Genesis, we read about God creating the world and then creating Adam and Eve and making them a family. Man, woman, marriage, and children are all there in the first four chapters of the Bible. And God's plan was absolutely perfect. He knew it wasn't good for us to be alone, and so he created marriage. And marriage was for companionship and intimacy, and we could help each other and encourage each other, and always, I mean always, speak to each other kindly and sensitively. If some of you don't look convinced on that, so it might not be working as perfectly as God planned. Let's try another. He gave us children. Children to be our constant joy and constant delight. And um, they will always respect their parents. They will always obey their parents. And according to Proverbs 31, they will always rise up to call their mother blessed. You're laughing. You might not be convinced of that one either. You see, even though God's concept of family is perfect, our ability to live it out is anything but perfect, isn't it? Our ability to live it out and model it has always been woefully inadequate, and it isn't just that we do a bad job of living out God's perfect plan, Adam and Eve's family had problems too. I mean, their oldest child, Cain, murdered their second child, Abel. Now, several things are being thought right now. It's running through your mind. If your siblings were or are as annoying as mine, you might be thinking, I totally understand why Cain murdered Abel. I get that. Some parents in this room are thinking, you know, my kids fight all the time, they bicker all the time, but at least one of them hasn't killed the other yet. You're thinking, I might be doing okay. But can I be honest? Others in the room are really uncomfortable right now. They might have their arms crossed or they're struggling because for them, this isn't a funny subject at all. For them, the word family all by itself brings pain. For some, because they seriously have feelings of hate for someone who they're supposed to love because the person is in their family, they're supposed to love them, but they have feelings of hate. Others are in pain right now because they're seriously concerned that someone that they love, someone in their family, really might hate them. Seriously might hate them. Not just that the person is mad at them, they're worried that the person hates them. And if you're in one of those groups, if you're one of those people in pain for one of those reasons, Here's the hard part. I probably won't address your hurt very well today. I probably won't 
in this message that is called, Does Jesus Want Me to Hate My Family? And I want to say that up front because if you're a person who's hurting because of family conflict or you're estranged from uh, a family member, somebody that you love and you're hurting, I want you to know we are here to help. Even though this message might not address everything that you're feeling, we want to help you. We offer counseling through our counseling center and uh, our Celebrate Recovery ministry, which we call Revolution, every, meets every Friday night. And it would be a great place for you to deal with this area of hurt in your life. And so even though this message may not deal directly with why your family is a source of pain for you, I want you to know that we want to help and we want to walk alongside of you as you try to find a way to win in that situation. But the person who submitted this curious comment came from a different place. It's a person who seems to love her family and who seems to be loved by her family. And I'm guessing she just can't understand how Jesus could say what he said in the verses that she listed. Here are those verses. In Luke chapter 14, we read, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus said that. Wow. Did I read that right? Those are strong words. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your siblings, you cannot be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Let's look at the other passage she listed. It's in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come um, to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. First he says, I need to hate my family or I can't follow him. And now we read that he says, don't think that I came to bring peace, but I came to turn family members against each other to make your family members your enemies. And for most of us, these are really upsetting passages. These are upsetting passages. So let's dive in. Let's try to understand the heart of Jesus here. First, let's deal with the discomfort. And the question is, does he really mean that? Does he really mean that? That's the question, is it? isn't it? Can he possibly mean what he said? And some scholars would say, no. Jesus didn't mean that. They would explain that in the language that Jesus was speaking, there was no qualifier that allowed him to soften this. And in their culture, they would have all understood 
that he was uh, making a comparison, not a harsh statement. And that's why other translations soften this a little. Look at the same verse in the New Century translation from Luke 14. It says, if anyone comes to me but loves his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters, or even life more than me, he cannot be my follower. Now, how many of you are more comfortable with that translation than the one that uses the word hate. Yeah, me too. But you understand, this one still ought to be a curious comment for us. If many of us are honest, we might still be uncomfortable saying, I love Jesus more than I love my kids. I love Jesus more than I love my wife. I love Jesus more than I love my parents. What Jesus said that day wasn't easy for the people listening to digest and understand any more than it is for us to digest and understand. Let's look at this from a couple of angles. First, look at the problem of making Jesus one of my priorities. Look at the problem of making Jesus one of my priorities. Clearly, Jesus says in both of the passages that we just read that he wants to be not just one of our priorities, but our top priority. We talked about this a few months ago. He doesn't want to be just prominent in our life. He wants to be preeminent in our life. He wants to be first. But the problem is other things kind of sneak in and end up being the top priority in our life. Have you noticed that? And I'm not talking about sinful things. I'm not talking about bad things sneaking in. I think most often the things that sneak in and knock Jesus out of first place in our life are good things, not bad things, good things. The things that sneak in today aren't much different than the things that snuck in and knocked Jesus out of first place in, his, in the time when he lived. Jesus told this story in Luke 14, um, and same place where we see the passage we looked at earlier, but look at starting with verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. Now, the master becomes angry. Why? Well, this is not a spur-of-the-moment invitation. In their culture, they would have been invited very early, and they would have uh, accepted or rejected the invitation at the time that they were invited. But it went, when it came time for the party, when it came time for them to arrive, they began to make excuses. So picture people RSVPing for your wedding. And signing up to be there and ordering what they want, chicken or beef. And they sign up for your wedding and uh, you pay for the meal and then they don't show up. That's what's happening here. It's time for them to come to the party and they begin to make excuses. This was really, really rude in the culture of Jesus' day. 
But look at the excuses they make. The first guy says, I bought some real estate and I need to go check it out. Basically, he says, excuse me, because of my possessions. The second guest says, well, I bought some new equipment for my farm and I have to try them out. He says, basically, excuse me, because of my work situation. The third guy apparently had eloped since getting the invitation to the dinner. That's all I can figure out because he says, please excuse me because of my family, because of my wife, because of my family. Now notice, none of these things are bad things. None of these things are bad things. In fact, many of them are good things, but this points out the fact that it is a constant contest. Good things often get in the way of the best things. Good things often get in the way of the best things. It's hard to keep Jesus first because we have these other priorities. We say, Jesus, I have some vacation property, so excuse me from my commitments so I can go use it. Or I'm going, if I'm going to succeed at this new job, I will have to work and miss church. Or uh, my family obligations are going to cause me to cut back on serving and giving. And we basically make the same excuses, my possessions, my work, my family. And because not one of them is a bad thing, we think Jesus will understand. We think he'll understand, and we make ourselves feel better because truly in our heart and our mind, Jesus is still one of our priorities. He is right up there with our spouse and our kids and our job and all the things we own and have financed. But when we take this view, we've missed something really important. We've missed the demand to make Jesus our top priority. The demand to make Jesus our top priority. Let's go on with Jesus' story in Luke 14. In the story, after the invited guests make excuses, the master becomes angry and he sends the servants out to find people on the streets to come to the party. I mean, he's looking for street people. He says, the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And they go out and do that and there's still room at the party. And the master says, go out and find anyone else you can and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Now, don't miss the fact, this is kind of a sideline, but don't miss the fact that Jesus's story says very clearly he wants his house to be full. And the house that he's talking about, the house that he wants full is heaven. He's saying, go out and invite everyone so that heaven will be full. And we get that. But don't miss how Jesus ends the story. Start with verse 24. He says, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get to taste my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's right. The verses about hating your family and being willing to die on, the, uh, on a cross for Jesus is the explanation of Jesus' story. It explains Jesus' story. And I get that the consensus opinion is that Jesus is using an exaggerated hyperbole to get across a point that he has to be our greatest love, that we must love others less than we love him. But here's what I fear. 
I think we have worked hard to make Jesus comfortable and less radical. We've worked hard to make Jesus comfortable and less radical. We want him to be more understanding and less demanding. But he's not. He's not. What if Jesus intends to be radical in his influence on how we live our life? What if by making his requests more palatable, we have missed the fact that it's not a request at all? It's a demand. Tim Ritter in his book, Not a Safe God, says this, quote, contemporary Christianity has focused so much on God's goodness that perhaps we've forgotten he's a lion. He's not safe, not safe at all. He demands much of us and throws down the gauntlet of the fatal disease of complacency that has infected us. We've made God comfortable, but if we take him seriously, he'll overturn our current lifestyles. Here's what I think. I think Jesus means to be radical in our life. I think he wants, no, I think he demands to be first and foremost in our lives. And if Jesus is first, that means everything else is second. That means everyone else is second, including our family. Jesus wants us to deal with anything that gets in the way of him. We can't let anything take the place of Jesus. There's only one place in our life that Jesus will accept. He requires that we make him first place, top priority, and that everything else falls somewhere beneath that. So when he says we need to hate our family, he's saying that you need to hate anything that competes for first place in your life. It doesn't matter if it's a hobby or a husband, a promotion or a possession, a 401k or a family member. It all comes second to Jesus. It all comes second to Jesus. And that isn't a request from Jesus. It's a demand. It's a demand that he has for all who claim him as Lord. Jesus says, I want you to choose me to the extent that if your family gets in the way of your relationship with me, I will be your ultimate choice. That's what Jesus says. I want to be the ultimate choice if there has to be a choice. And in a sense, the entire story of the Bible can be boiled down to this one choice. The entire story of the Bible. Are we going to follow Jesus fully and let him control our lives or will we let other things crowd him out of top spot in our life? It's not an easy question. Not a comfortable question. But all of the Bible story boils down to that one choice. But I think it's pretty important before we're done that we also deal with the irony. Here's the question, what happens if I really do put Jesus first? Too many people are worried that if they do this, if they choose Jesus as their top priority, that it's just going to ruin their lives. 
It's going to totally mess up their lives, that they will have to love their kids less, and they'll not be able to ever have a hobby, and that they can no longer be on the success track at work. And here's the thing. I think Jesus is radical, and I think he demands to be first in our lives, but I also think the results of making Jesus my top priority are kind of ironic. Let me spend some time answering the question, what happens to everything else when we put Jesus first? Here's the first irony. Our family stays a priority, but on Jesus's terms. The consistent teaching of the Bible is that we need to put a high value on our family. So when I put Jesus first, my family stays extremely high on my list of priorities or might even raise on my list of priorities. In fact, Look at this verse from 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Did you catch that? If I don't provide the things my family needs, I'm worse than someone who has never believed in Jesus and I've denied my faith. The passage does seem to be talking about finances here and providing financially for them. And today, we have to be careful about this. This does not mean that we have to provide them with everything that they want, with all of the luxuries of life. But it does mean that I have to provide food and shelter for my family members when they're in need. That includes my spouse and my kids, but it also includes my parents and my siblings and other relatives. Now, if they are able-bodied, I also need to pay attention to the fact that Scripture says that if you refuse to work, you shouldn't eat. And it's okay for me to pay attention to that, too. But if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm obligated to provide for their needs. But this means other needs also. It means their need for time and attention and their need for fun and recreation and so much more. One of our problems is today that we have begun to enable or to equate getting our kids involved in a lot of extracurricular activities at like sports teams and dance and music and martial arts. We've equated that with providing for their needs. And maybe some of that is needed there, but as parents, some parents consider it quality time with their kids when they're sitting in some sports stand watching their kids run around on a field. Or when they're in, crammed in a car, scarfing down fast food, yelling at their kids on their way to the next event. I think we need to be careful that we really are meeting their needs. They're, that we're meeting their needs for our time and that we're not replacing that with their desire to be involved or our desire to see them excel at something. So when I put Jesus first, it keeps my family a high priority, maybe a higher priority. Second, when we put Jesus first, our purpose becomes a priority, but on Jesus's terms. My life verse is here. It's from Acts chapter 20. It says, but my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. And some, are you, some of you are saying, Pastor, that's a great life verse for you because you spend your time telling people the good news of Jesus, but don't miss what the verse says to you. 
It's saying your life is worth nothing unless you use it to fulfill God's purpose for your life. Your life is worth nothing if you waste it just doing what people normally do. And we'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but God has given each person here a purpose to fulfill. There's something that he puts you on earth to do for him, to achieve for him, to accomplish for him. For me, it's speaking like this to people who need to hear and understand the good news that Jesus has for them. For others, it might be helping people like us express our heart of praise to God through through music, or for others, it's serving as a missionary in a faraway country, or helping people overcome addictions, or rocking babies in the nursery while their parents hear the message, or leading a group, or volunteering at a homeless shelter, or many, many other things. But when we make Jesus our top priority, our purpose becomes a priority. It becomes our passion, and we just don't feel fulfilled until we seek to achieve that purpose that he has for us. Making Jesus our top priority makes our purpose a priority too. Next, our church becomes a priority, but on Jesus's terms. In, in America today, we've devalued this one some. And um, that's kind of an interesting thing. We heard this week at our retreat that core church people attend church 1.4 times per month. And what's disturbing to me is about a year and a half ago at a conference, I heard that it was 1.8 times a month. And so it's going the wrong direction. Jesus calls us to make attending church a huge priority in our life. Look at this passage from Hebrews 10. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the reason that we need to be in church on a regular basis is because we need each other. We need each other. We need to push others towards loving others more and doing right things more, and we need to encourage each other on difficult days. And so if I'm reading the passage right, when we're only in church 1.4 times a month, two things happen. I get more discouraged, I get more negative, I get more selfish, and so do the people that we care about. Now, how do I know that? Because the passage says that if I'm not in church, no one's pushing me towards love, no one's pushing me towards doing good deeds, and so I'm getting selfish, and no one's encouraging me, so I'm getting discouraged, and I'm getting negative, and because I'm not at church, I'm not there encouraging and pushing others towards the right thing that they need to do, and I'm not encouraging them. You see, being in church is a priority because I need to be there, but also because other people need me to be there. Other people need me to be there. Another thing that happens when we make Jesus first is our responsibilities become priorities, but on Jesus' terms. Making Jesus your top priority doesn't mean that you won't be able to succeed at work. Remember that we said during our series in Colossians, we talked about this. Look at the verse from Colossians 3. It says, in all the work you are doing, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for the Lord, not for people. I should be a better employee if Jesus is really first in my life. 
because I'm not working for a boss, but I'm working for Jesus. And by the way, this also impacts how I deal with my financial commitments and my other promises. If I understand Jesus wants me to work for him and I understand Jesus wants me to keep my promises, I have to keep my commitments. I have to be responsible. I have to pay my bills and keep the other promises I've made. Well, we're running out of time, so let me give you just one more. Our rest becomes a priority, but on Jesus' terms. Again, some people are worried that if they make Jesus first in their life, they can't have any hobbies anymore. They can't go out and just have fun. They can't go out and enjoy recreation. And uh, this passage, uh, this uh, scripture, and all of what Jesus says is that when Jesus becomes a priority, so does our rest, so does our recreation. Look at this from Mark chapter 6. Crowds of people were coming and going so that Jesus and his followers did not even have time to eat. He said to them, come away by yourselves and we will go to a lonely place to get some rest. So they went in a boat by themselves to a lonely place. You know, most of us stay too tired all the time. We stay exhausted all the time and Jesus wants us to rest. To rest and for that to happen, for me to rest, my rest cannot be work. Now, I don't know what it is for you, but I, we have people who run marathons here, and they say, that's my recreation, that's me resting. You know what? For me, that'd be work. You, you understand? For me to rest, my rest can't be work. I've seen some people who love to fish and they spend hours and hours and hours getting all of their gear ready and getting the boat ready. And get, your rest can't be work if you're gonna rest. And so that's part of it. But Jesus wants us to rest. And too often we exhaust ourselves going on vacation or doing our hobbies. How long has it been since you just rested? You know, for some of you, the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Not during the sermon, okay? <laughs> but the most spiritual thing some of you can do is just take a nap. You see, everything else, everything else falls into place on Jesus' terms when we make him number one. All of these things are still priorities, but um, they are on Jesus' terms. And so the priorities aren't the same as people around us might think. Here's the thing, before we're out of time, some may be sitting there thinking today, okay, what if? What if my family really is getting in the way of my relationship with Jesus? What if my family really is getting in the way of making Jesus first in my life? You're wondering, if that's the case, do I really need to hate them? The answer is only if they're keeping you from keeping Jesus, number one. Jesus demands first place. He demands that we put him above every other name. We sang that earlier. That his name be higher than every other name. And you know what that means? That includes the names in my life, like Jill, 
Angela and Ryan and Bethany and Jeremy. It demands that I put his name above all of those other names. And making him first usually raises the priority of those that I love. But you know, if you are in relationships with people that cause you to put distance between you and God, then you probably ought to put distance between them and you. If you're in a relationship with people who cause distance between you and God, you ought to put distance between them and you or you need to fix it. You need to put Jesus as number one again. You may have to sit down with those people and talk to them about the priority Jesus is in your life. But Jesus demands to be number one. I want to close with this reading from a book called Disciple by Juan Carlos Ortiz. It says this, Jesus said in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of God was like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found the pearl of great price, he said uh, he sold everything he had to buy it. Of course, some Christians think that the story means that we are the pearl of great price and Christ has given up everything to redeem us, but now we understand that he is the pearl of great price. We are the merchant seeking for happiness, for security, for fame, for eternity. And when we find Jesus, it costs us everything. He has happiness and joy and peace and healing and security, eternity, everything. And so we say, I want this pearl. How much is it? Well, the seller says, it's very expensive. But how much, we ask? Well, a very large amount. Do you think I could buy it? Of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it's very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have says the seller. We make up our minds, all right, I'll buy it, we say. Well, what do you have, he wants to know. Let's write it down. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000, what else? That's all, that's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. Well, how much? We start digging and we see 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, $120. That's fine, what else do you have? Well, nothing, that's all. Where do you live? He's still prodding. In my house. Oh, yes, I have a house. The house too then, he writes that down. You mean I'm gonna have to live in my camper? Oh, you have a camper. That too. What else? I'll have to sleep in my car. You have a car? Two of them. Both become mine. Both cars, what else? Well, you already have my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? Are you alone in this world? No, I have a wife and two children. Oh, yes, your wife and your children too. What else? I have nothing left. I am left all alone now. Suddenly the seller exclaims, oh, I almost forgot. You yourself too. Everything becomes mine, wife children, house, money, cars, and you too. And then he goes on. Now listen, I will allow you to use all of these things for the time being, but don't forget that they are mine just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up 
because now I'm the owner. And that's how it is when Jesus is first place in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a hard message because you've placed on our hearts so much love for some of the people around us. So much drive towards some of the good things that you've given to us. And now, Father, help us to love you more. To keep you as a higher priority. In Jesus' name.